0: Sometime in the nebulous cloud that was the year 2020, I was happily working in the lab when a coworker of mine asked me a question. A thought mused aloud, a way to pass the time perhaps, but the query was poignant. Certainly not in an earth-shaking, worldview-shattering kind of way, of course, but it caused me to actually think. The question that she asked was thus. If you were an animal, what would you be? To any other person, such an innocuous query could be dismissed offhandedly as an icebreaker, something to get conversation flowing. A lioness, one might say, without thought, because I want to be a ferocious hunter. And you'd be done with the question. But yet, the question was not what animal do you want to be, no, no. The question was far more introspective than that. My friend was not asking for something so simple, nay, she was asking me to parse my own qualities and align them with the thousands and thousands of animal species that exist on this wide blue earth. Well, I knew for a fact that I had to be something marine, I mean, duh, but that only narrows it down so much. What animal on this wide blue earth would I be? Was I an octopus? I asked at first. I certainly can be alien, at times, and many people have lauded my intelligence. A shark, perhaps? No, I am not that graceful in the water, much as I want to be. Perhaps I am that which I have tattooed upon my body, an eel, cunning and slippery, hard to pin down. Still, no, I go crazy if I spend my daytime all in one place. Am I? A sea turtle? Traveling great distances and returning to a comfortable home? I'm close, but no. Coral? No, they are symbiotic, and and though social, I am way too independent. And I do like to move. The leafy sea dragon? The flying gurnard? The vampire squid? No, no, and no! This went on for a period of time longer than I care to admit. Eventually, though, it struck me. An otter! Of course! It was so obvious all this time. Playful, curious, good divers, social but independent and cute as all hell. (laughs) That's it! Of course, how could it be anything else? So that makes my final answer. A female sea otter, of course, I eventually replied. At this point, my co-workers had lost interest. And moved on to other tasks. Okay, okay, so it wasn't a perfect answer, but it was one that I liked. Sea otters are so many things. They are curious and investigative and pretty darn smart, all things that I pride myself on. They are social, but not too social. And they are good swimmers and divers. And they are important in helping marine ecosystems to be healthy and the best that they can be. They do have a dark side, but they also love to have fun for the sake of fun. Man, all this tracks just so well. As my scientific brain is wont to do, I started looking into sea otters just to see how closely our traits would actually align, and man, did I go down that rabbit hole. Turns out, all of the aforementioned character traits are just a few of the incredibly large list of cool facts about sea otters. So, to you, dear listener, I offer the following proclamation that the following amazing facts contained within this podcast about the world's most unique marine mammal are all things that you, to know. Oh hey, I didn't see you there. You're listening to Biodiversity, the podcast about pelagic paradigms and coral curiosities, where we bring the best and flippin' fun fish facts straight to your earholes. It's like with the delivery drivers of peer-reviewed aquatic science, the grub hub of fish food for your mind, the DoorDash of Dope Decapods. Here on the show, we examine the weird, the wacky, and the wonderful diversity of life that lives under the crashing waves of our blue home. Using cutting edge science as our guide, we dive deep into both the common and the rare, the exotic and the ugly. So tune in for the tuna, stick around for the scorpion fish. Let's descend. Today on the show, otters. Man, I have loved otters of all varieties ever since seeing them firsthand in the local aquarium when I went as a kid. I remember seeing them just swimming fast towards the window panes, sliding up and out of the water, and using the window to launch into backflips. What fun it would be to be an otter! You know, I talked to a lot of friends and family and you guys on the podcast about how cute I find marine animals. You know, I think sharks are adorable, big puppies, eels are endearing, floppy noodles. You know, even last episode, I extolled the cuteness and virtue of the scaly foot snail. You know, I hope I convinced you last episode, but in the real world, I always get weird looks, even though I'm speaking divine objective truth. So, as a scientist who does live in the real world, I suppose I must accept the fact that cute isn't actually objective or fact-based and ascribing human characteristics to animals isn't the wisest idea. But, that being said, I am really excited to be talking today about one thing I think most people can agree on is, in fact, cute. Otters have adorable faces, small little paws, sleek fluffy fur, and they even have cute behaviors. I mean, rubbing their faces, floating on their backs, and even holding paws? I mean, if if you don't think otters are cute, I am forced to question the existence of your soul, to be honest. So when I say otter in this episode, I am most likely going to be referring to the sea otter, scientific name Anhydra lutris, the only member of the genus Enhydra. The distinction is crucial because among otter species, the sea otter is incredibly unique. You know, while the majority of this episode will focus on the sea otter, it is worth mentioning that there are actually 13 known extant species of otter, all of them cute, and all of them in the family Mustilidae. As Mustilids, they are evolutionarily related to animals like weasels, wolverines, badgers, and the stoat. Everybody loves the stoat all 13 species of otter rely on water for their survival, hunting for fish and shellfish. Most of them rely on freshwater of rivers and lakes, but two of them are known to be oceanic. The previously mentioned sea otter and hydrolutris, and the smaller but equally as cool marine otter, felina. But even though both of these species live and hunt in the ocean, the marine otter does have to come onto land as they make their dens on rugged rocky coastlines. The sea otter, however, bucks all of the previously established otter rules. It is the only otter species to not build burrows or dens, and it is the only otter species that can have an entirely aquatic existence. That is to say, it doesn't have to leave the water if it doesn't want to. To be honest, I'm jealous. I don't ever want to leave the water myself, but I still do have to come out eventually. The pain of being human. In terms of range, river otters are found almost all over the world in rivers, lakes, and marshes. Our two oceanic friends are found along coastlines and islands, duh. The sea otter is found, historically, in this kind of inverted U-range. If you start in the southern areas of California in the United States, reaching up and across the southern shores of Alaska, all the way across the patchwork bridge that we call the Aleutian Islands, southwest following the Kuril Islands, and ending around Japan. The other species, the rarer and less well-known marine otter, likes to frolic around the western and southern parts of South America. You'll notice I said historic range when talking about the sea otter, as, you guessed it, their range in the present day has shrunk significantly. And can you guys guess why? Is it A, humans, B, humans, C, climate change caused by humans, or D, humans? If your answer was E, all of the above, you would be absolutely correct, but I bet you didn't come here to be hit with that depressing news right off the bat, did you? While it is true that sea otter populations have gone through the ringer as a result of human activity, there is actually some good news about sea otter populations that we're going to get into later in the episode. But before we talk about any of that, let's learn about what makes sea otters so cool. Oh man, oh man, I hope you have all signed on for a whole episode of Rapid Fire Facts about adorable sea weasels, because that is exactly what you're getting this episode. Let's descend. Today we're going to talk about a few major topics that make sea otters so cool. Broadly broken down, these are anatomy, behavior, ecological significance, and evolutionary significance. After that, we're going to round out our discussion with some history and take a look at the populations of sea otters across time. It is going to be so much fun. So let's start with anatomy. One of the most significant and cool things about sea otter anatomy is the thing that they're probably most known for, their fur. Now their fur is really thick and really soft, and sea otters actually hold a world record here. Of all the known creatures on Earth, they have the densest fur. This means that they have a lot of hair to cover their adorable bodies. That number sits at around 150,000 hairs per square centimeter of skin, which is roughly 1 million hairs per square inch. So a typical sea otter will have several million hairs covering its body, and of course this makes it super soft. I bet you want to pet a sea otter now, don't you? Well, don't. D- don't, don't do it. They're wild animals. Seriously. A man can dream, though. Being soft to the touch isn't the only evolutionary advantage that the otters have going for them with this crazy amount of hair. It actually ends up serving quite a few purposes. First and foremost is warmth. If you've ever dipped a foot or tried to swim in the western Pacific coast of the U.S., in British Columbia, or in Alaska, you'll quickly find that it's probably not the nice, warm, toasty, refreshing waters of the Caribbean. Most likely, if you are in the same waters of these otters, it is going to be cold. Probably shockingly so. Yet, as mentioned prior, sea otters can live their entire lives without leaving the cold water, and as marine mammals— they do have to keep their internal temperature rather high, just like us. Other mammals use a thick insulating layer of fat called blubber under their skin that helps insulate and keep them warm, but otters lack any of this blubber, so they're forced to find another way to keep warm. And as you might have guessed, that way is their fur, but not quite for the reason that you might think. After all, even the thickest, softest blanket that you can burrito yourself up in does become kind of useless once you get it wet. So it's not actually the warm hairs themselves keeping the otter nice and toasty, it's actually... Air! You know, that stuff, what we breathe. The fur is actually so dense that it can trap something as wiggly and hard to contain as air right next to the skin. It's not actually all too novel of a concept. As stated before, a regular fluffy blanket keeps you warm by doing practically the same thing, trapping air next to your body that your body heat warms, which then makes you feel all nice and toasty. The otter does the same thing, but it takes it up about 60 notches. They are able to trap air near perfectly, Like, I wouldn't even hesitate to call it a superpower, especially when you realize that their warm mammalian bodies do need to stay close to our own, around 37 degrees Celsius or 99 degrees Fahrenheit. I mean, that is an incredible difference from the cold water around them. So how does it actually all work? Well, looking at the hair, their fur is divided into two distinct layers. There's an outer layer of excellently named guard hairs and an inner protected layer called underfur. These two layers work in concert. The guard hairs work to protect the underfur from becoming wet, and the underfur staying dry actually traps the air. This is the reason for the density of the fur. With so many hairs it makes it very hard for the air to escape, but the fur's density is only part of the equation. After all, density alone might not matter hypothetically if the hair was perfectly combed and manicured. I mean, it would be useless. It might win the otter best in show at the National Otter Invitational, but I'm not sure how useful that award is when you got pups to feed. No, the otter actually wants its fur to be as tangled and messy as possible. Like, your bad hair day is going to feel like a princess after seeing these tangles. But the otter wants it that way, so much so that the fur is engineered at the microscopic level to encourage mega-matting. Over the years, researchers have looked at the structure of the hair with scanning electron microscopy, and the images are mind-blowing. At such a small scale, it can be seen that otter hairs are covered in microscopic geometric barbs, giving them a really spiky appearance. The spikes serve to help the hair mat so, so tightly that it creates a layer that is all but impenetrable to even the craftiest water molecules. It is not an exaggeration to say that this matted fur creates a nigh on perfect shield. This is what keeps the otter's body and underfur completely and totally dry. I'm going to include a link to the scanning electron microscope pictures of otter fur in the show notes. Go check them out. They are so cool. So that's the guard hairs, out there earning their namesake by guarding the underfur from the water molecules. Well, that's all well and good, but just because you aren't wet doesn't mean that you aren't cold, and that is where the underfur layer comes into play. Just like the guard hairs, the underfur is also dense and tangly, and it's the one that works to trap air right next to the sea otter's skin. The natural body heat of the otter warms the air, which then, well, it can't go anywhere, so that warm, balmy air is pretty much trapped right next to the skin by the crazy weave, and it sticks around to warm the animal in turn. You know, oftentimes while grooming— Otters can actually blow bubbles into their own fur, so that's how the air gets there in the first place. It is adorable. So, put it all together, you have the guard hairs keeping water out, and the underfur keeping air in. Bam! Perfect shield to stay dry and warm. Even among the crazy world of animal adaptions, this is pretty nuts. I mean, as someone who gets chronically cold, like, all the time for no reason, what I wouldn't give to have that kind of power. Although, even though it is unique, that isn't to say it's not without its disadvantages. Air, while warm and toasty, does tend to act against the otter in a few ways when they try to fully submerge. I mean, primarily air is, well, buoyant. It naturally wants to escape and float up to the surface, but since it is so well trapped, it can't do that. So instead, it exerts an upward buoyant force on the otter itself making the otter have to work really, really hard to dive down. Some otters have actually been observed utilizing heavy rocks or grabbing onto nearby kelp just to stay underwater. I mean, this is taken to an extreme in the otter's early life, too, as baby otter fur is so dense and good at air trapping that sea otter pups are simply too buoyant to dive at all. This is called a lanugo coat, and until they lose it, so for the first six or so weeks of a pup's life, it causes the pup to just cork bob to the surface, no matter how hard it might want to try diving. And, well, since most of the otter diet exists on the seafloor, during this time before they can be taught to dive, otter pups are entirely reliant on mom to go dive down and scrounge up food for the both of them still though the benefits of this coat far outweigh the costs so it makes sense that otters take pretty good care of their fur that's why to the casual observer it appears that a sea otter might spend a healthy majority of its time engaging in grooming behavior i mean hey you got to put the effort into looking this good unfortunately there is one more weakness to this superpowered fur and it is horribly fatal oil if otter fur gets oiled, say from a massive oil spill just to name a hypothetical, it interferes with the ability to hold air. And maybe interfere isn't strong enough of a word, but it's kind of hard to come up with a scientific word that says it completely screws them over so hard that an oiled otter will get hypothermia and drown. But yeah, that's exactly what will happen. And I, for one, don't want these adorable sea puppies to suffer anywhere near that kind of fate. So maybe let's just not have crazy environmentally disastrous oil spills going forward? Okay? Okay. Now that that's sorted and there's never going to be another oil spill ever again in the history of forever, let's talk about other cool things about sea otter anatomy. Though, To be entirely honest, otters are way too cool to cover everything in-depth in one episode. So, for your listening pleasure, I've put together the following list of otter rapid facts for your brain's immediate imbibement. See otter rapid fact number one. Otter skeletons are super supple and bendy. Because of the aforementioned need to keep their fur groomed just so, the supple skeleton and looser skin of the otter contort in all manner of ways so that they can reach all of the areas of their fur. It's like they're an adorable little circus contortionist. (laughs) See, otter rapid fact number two. Despite being one of the smallest marine mammal species, otters are heavy boys and girls. If you have ever daydreamed about having an otter perch upon your shoulder like a cat, and let's be honest, who hasn't? Just know that otters can be anywhere between 31 to 119 pounds. Talk about a weight on your shoulders. Totally worth it, though. Sea otter rapid fact number three. Like a lot of underwater hunters, sea otters have particularly refined senses. Their eyesight is good, both above and below water, but of particular interest are their whiskers, nose, and forepaws. The whiskers can sense vibrations made by the movement of prey in the water, and the particularly sensitive forepaws can help find prey by touch. These two senses help the otter find prey even in murky water, when sight isn't exactly a help. Add in a nose that researchers have shown can differentiate between contaminated, potentially poisonous clams from fresh, tasty, safe ones. You have an animal that can adapt to hunting in a lot of different situations. See otter rapid fact number four, they can drink seawater. I'm going to say that again. They can drink seawater. This is something that is super rare in marine mammals. It's not something one usually thinks about, but seawater is actually toxic to us humans when ingested. Our bodies do not have a way to deal with all the excess salt, and it literally becomes poisonous. But sea otters can actually drink the stuff. It's some crazy anatomical BS that I have a hard time not calling magic, but by utilizing a specialized large kidney with a nutty structure called a loop of Henle... The otter is actually able to absorb the fresh water from seawater and leave the salt in a super concentrated urine, which then can be safely excreted. Now, otters don't do this too often. Most of their water comes from metabolism from eating, but it will do in a pinch. (laughs) What a crazy trick. And hey, if you enjoyed this fact about super salty otter pee, remember to subscribe to the podcast. Last but not least, sea otter rapid fact number five! Sometimes otters can exhibit purple teeth and bones. This is due to the high amount of sea urchins in their diet. The purple pigment from the urchins can accumulate in their bones and teeth over time, causing a purple stain. This isn't an adaption or anything, I just think an otter with purple teeth is super fetch. What's that? Fetch Fetch isn't a thing? Why didn't anybody tell me that fetch never happened? That's a lot of sea otter facts, but we've only covered anatomy so far. Otters, slow down with your coolness or I'll have to call the cool police. (sighs) There's a lot more otter facts coming your way, and I am not liable for any brains exploding due to awesomeness. Alright? And this next section is a whirlwind, because it is time to talk about sea otter Behavior. Animal behavior in general is fascinating. You know, when when I was still a young diver, a wee lad to the world of bubbles, I remember getting in trouble for doing what my dad affectionately termed the dead man's float. I would be so enraptured by watching the movement and behaviors of the animals that I would kind of forget to move? I guess I would just float there motionless and the only indication that I was alive was the stream of bubbles coming out of my regulator. Still, though, it brings up a fun point. It is one thing to see an animal in the wild, you know, a nifty check mark on your list or a photo for your album, but it is another entirely to really watch the animal, see what it is doing and how it's doing it and maybe why. It's not only fun to watch, but it can give both scientists and the casual observer key clues to the adaptions that the animal might have or its lifestyle needs and wants. Sea otters exhibit a variety of fascinating behaviors, and with just about everything else with sea otters, they are super adorable. And if you don't believe me, maybe you'll listen to, you know, I don't know, Ewan McGregor? Ewan, what are we looking at here? We're looking at sea otters. Six of them here. And they, they were in front of us, and they were just following them now, slowly. They're Beautiful. They go down to the bottom, they get a stone, and they go down to the bottom and they get a seashell. And then, um, like a clam or something like that. And they come back up and they and they roll on their backs and then they smash the shell with the stone like that. And then eat the, eat the uh, muscle or whatever is inside. Go down for another one. With a stone. It's cool, isn't it? General Kenobi. That is such a great point. It is cool. The behavior that he's talking about is the sea otter's tendency to use rocks as tools. Uh, Just like he said, they will find a rock, and since a lot of their diet is shelled, things like urchins and crabs and the like, they'll use the rock and bang the rock against the hard shell to crack it open to get to the tasty meat underneath. And this behavior goes beyond just finding a nearby rock. The aforementioned loose skin of the otter forms these baggy pockets under each forearm. Pockets that they'll use to store the rock that they've picked as their favorite rock. Guys, sea otters have a favorite rock. Let that sink in and otter's just like, this is my rock. There are many like it, but this one is mine. It is my rock. Uh, I just can't. They'll carry around this rock with them just all of the time. Clever and cute go hand in hand, it seems. And speaking of hand in hand, another interesting behavior of sea otters is their tendency to hold hands, well, hold paws, with each other while they're floating. Little fluffy otters holding paws. This behavior is called rafting, and it is done to ensure that groups of sea otters don't float away from one another. Typically, rafting behavior is done while sleeping, and it ensures that groups of otters don't float away from each other due to the motion of the ocean. After all, there's safety in numbers, and you don't want to be the lone otter floating out there that might get preyed upon. For this reason, large groups of otters at rest, all holding hands together, is called a raft of otters. So that's a fact you know now. A raft of otters. You're welcome. If being worried about drifting away from the group is a problem for adult otters, it doesn't take a large stretch of the imagination to think that the pups, with their super bouncy buoyancy, are a unique problem all their own. Normally, they can rest all cozy-like, floating on top of mom, but what about when mom goes down to dive for food? Well, to solve this unique problem, we see another neat behavior. Moms will wrap their pups up all nice and snug in nearby fronds of seaweed, like the world's most adorable seatbelt. That way, the pups stay in place, all cozy and floaty while mom can confidently hunt. Man, life is so rough for an otter pup. Sometimes even the adult otters will wrap themselves in kelp, especially if there are no other nearby otters to raft with. And speaking of pups, otters are a phenomenal example of another important behavior of animals, play. In both aquariums and in the wild, sea otter pups will spend a lot of time wrestling with one another or engaging in some other form of play, This isn't just cute and a way for baby otters to pass the time, it's a concept in biology that young animals who engage in play are actually learning how to interact with the world around them by doing so. It's not just socializing, it's actually developing them and growing their young brains. Through play, pups will learn social cues and develop cognitively, essentially learning how to be an otter by playing with other baby otters. Okay. Okay. I mentioned at the start of the podcast that I wanted to specifically be a female sea otter, and there is an unfortunate behavioral reason for that. Male sea otters tend to show the darker side of the otter world, at least when you artificially impose human standards and values onto wild animals that have no idea what human standards and values are, or can even understand those words. But there is a bit of a violent side when it comes to mating males that does belong squarely in the behavior discussion. So if you have younger ears listening or you wish to keep your pristine sea otters are always cute and adorable 100% of the time outlook, I strongly advise that you skip ahead to the thirty-two thirty-five mark of the podcast. I'm going to give you a little bit of an island break here to fish out your device, hit pause if you want to, and find that thirty-two thirty-five mark. No shame. It's totally fine. I'll see you on the other side no matter what. Reiterate that in the field of biology, it is important to separate our human values from animal ones. But that said, even I admit that the male sea otter behavior when it comes time to mate can get pretty dark. Mating between sea otters can get pretty competitive. One male will usually mate with multiple females, and to do this, it will attempt to maintain a breeding territory in an area that is favored by the females. They'll try their best to patrol the edges of the territory and keep other males out. During this time, the females can move freely through these territories, but, unfortunately, things get pretty rough for them when the males are hot and heavy. Males can kind of go crazy when it comes to mating, and the actual act itself is really, really rough. Usually, the male will straight up bite onto the female's nose and hold on through the rough affair, and can end up getting pretty violent doing things like holding the female's head down underwater and ripping off bits of her flesh. The violent mating act goes on until the male releases the female, or in some cases, the female dies from the wounds or from drowning. Yeah, it's that aggressive. Even in cases where the female dies... Males have been observed trying to continue to mate with the corpse. Ugh. Now, the reasoning behind such violent behavior is still unclear to scientists. It doesn't seem to make much sense from an evolutionary standpoint. Yet, it seems pervasive. Males are just really, really mean when it comes to trying to mate. Some otters, especially ones that end up not winning the fierce competition to mate, have been observed getting so frustrated that they try to, well, force themselves onto baby seal pups. These attacks can be so violent that they become lethal. There have been reports of seal pups dying from the forced interaction. Uh, Okay, I mean, I know I just said we can't really force human ideals onto animals, but being so frustrated that you try to force yourself onto the young of another species, I... am I'm sorry, but that's pretty screwed up, man. Get yourselves together, otters. You are making the rest of your species look bad. It does make it worse to think that we still really don't know why they do this. Like I mentioned before, it makes very little sense from an evolutionary lens, which is something us biologists tend to default to in terms of our thinking. I mean, maybe there is a greater purpose or advantage to this kind of behavior that we just don't know, or maybe male sea otters can just be really, really mean. Whew. Hey everybody. Made it through? Now that that bit's over, how about a palate cleanser? For the dark, unfortunate side of otters that males bring to the table, the females try to make up for it in spades. <laughs> Go figure, right? So let's talk about the incredible willingness of females to not only do all the heavy lifting to raise their own pups, but to help other moms' pups survive and thrive too. There is one unfortunate problem with raising sea otter young. As a mama, you have to use a lot of energy to be able to take care of a pup. A female sea otter has to eat over a third of her body weight in food every day, and that's before pups, and remember, that is a lot because otters are heavy. Resources do tend to sometimes be an issue, which is why sometimes, if a sea otter mom doesn't have the required food or other resources for both her and her offspring, she'll sometimes unfortunately abandon her pup which, granted, is really sad, but it leads to another remarkable behavior of sea otters— adoption. The science world has a name for adopting a young that's not your own— alloparenting. Alloparenting behavior in sea otters has been documented so well, in part, due to unique sea otter surrogacy programs at aquariums the world over. Two well-known alloparents are a couple of amazing ladies at the Monterey Bay Aquarium, Rosa and Selka. Both of them are incredible surrogate mothers, and they help the aquarium team raise sea otter pups that they find abandoned or stranded in and around the bay. This is incredible for rehabilitation, as otter moms are great at teaching young pups how to be otters. Rosa and Selka take in imperiled otter pups, give them lots of love, teach them how to dive for food, how to crack open hard shells, and indeed all of the best parts of being an otter. After a period of growing and learning, the rehabilitated pups can then be released back into the wild. It's no exaggeration to say that these surrogate moms are the reason that these pups can even be released back into the wild in the first place, as pups that are rehabilitated by humans tend to become too reliant on them and become unfit for survival in the wild. Perhaps you might look at a scenario where a childless otter mom adopts one that is abandoned and think that it makes a lot of sense. But, since us biologists just love to think of everything in terms of evolutionary advantages, we run into a bit of a question of why. If you think about the biological desire to pass on your specific genes, adopting another otter's offspring kind of becomes a confusing behavior. Adopting parents have to use some of their own resources and a lot of their own energy to take care of any young. And there's a time cost, too. If the otter mom was wanting to have kids of her own, adopting might significantly delay that. It's weird to think about it this way, yet alloparenting behavior has actually been documented in over 270 different species, making it far from super rare. So again, that question, why? Well, there are a few possibilities. First, and perhaps most simply, is that the urge to parent is at the core of our biology as animals. That is, the want to parent is a strong biological urge. In documented cases of wild otters adopting pups, adoption happened when the adopting mother had recently lost her own pup. The mother would still have all sorts of chemicals and hormones still racing around, and being so primed for parenting, it would make sense that she'd be willing to adopt— There's also this idea floating around that alloparenting isn't all self-sacrifice on the part of the parent, that the adoptive mama actually gets measurable, tangible benefits from raising another kid. The actual act of parenting, be it your own offspring or another's, can actually change the mammalian brain. These benefits can range from actually making the parent smarter, all the way to increasing the likelihood and success rate of the alloparent's own biological child if they have one later in life. There are so many other theories too as to why alloparenting happens, from animals that temporarily alloparent to give the real parents a non-kid-related break, which, let's be real, all parents need that from time to time, uh, to social structure and status-related benefits, and all the way to the animal simply not being able to recognize that the kids that they're taking care of aren't their own. For now, it's kind of an understudied topic, but it's a really fascinating one. It's really amazing to think that there are sea otter moms out there willing and able to step up to the plate to help abandoned pups. And if that doesn't give you the warm fuzzies, well, I don't know what will. The ability to alloparent has been really important for the survival of sea otters, not only on an individual basis, but also as a species. Rosa and Selka at the Monterey Bay Aquarium, and indeed all of the other surrogate moms across all of otterdom, are helping bring back a species that was once on the brink of absolute catastrophe. And don't worry, if you were used to the final bits of the show being depressing and completely devoid of all hope, don't worry, this last bit of today's episode is mostly full of hope and otter smiles. So it is that we descend into our next utterly fascinating topics, ecological significance, evolutionary significance, and population status. There's an old saying, no otter is an island entire of itself. That I'm like 90% sure that that's how that quote goes anyways. As with most things in biology, every animal is a part of a larger ecosystem, and otters are a really, really important part of theirs. Once again, we're going to use the term keystone species to describe sea otters. This is that concept that sea otters have a disproportionately large impact on the ecosystems in which they take part. These ecosystems are usually pretty close to shore, but the diversity of habitats they can occupy is rather diverse. Of course, we know that they tend to like kelp forests, but any kind of protection from severe ocean winds close to shore can make good habitat, reefs and super rocky shorelines included. And like many ecosystems, there is a startling variety of life that exists in a crazy complicated balance with each other in every single one of them. If you listen to our episode on sea stars, you'll know that the pretty star-shaped echinoderms are another keystone species due to the overwhelming impact they have on the population of sea urchins— uncontrolled sea urchin populations can literally spell disaster for kelp forest ecosystems, leading to desolate urchin barrens where there is no sea life, only urchin. Well, otters hunt urchins too, and they also act as a huge check on their population, which ensures that the kelp forests, you know, stay alive? That's the kind of impact we're talking about. And that's just one example of otters acting as a keystone species. In rocky ecosystems, Otters are known to prey upon dense mussel beds, actually removing the mussels from the rocks. This frees up that substrate underneath for other species that need it to grow. Take that, mussel monopoly. The sea otter's impact gets huge as they are known to eat over a hundred different prey species, acting as a check and balance on each one. And while they certainly can hunt a prey population within a certain area to dangerously low numbers, they seem to switch their preferred prey to animals that become the most abundant after hunting another population down. It makes sense logically you'd go after the most abundant food, but the effect of doing this prey switching behavior is remarkable. Nothing ever gets hunted out of the area entirely and potential booms of populations that could wreak havoc on an ecosystem are kept in check. These effects are so big that some studies have actually shown that the reintroduction of sea otters in areas where kelp forest ecosystems are struggling can dramatically restore the forest's health. Just that one change, getting sea otters back into the mix. It's a simple but elegant ecosystem design, perfectly balanced, as all things should be. All right, so that's a brief primer on their ecological significance. Uh, what's left here? Oh, right! Sea otter genes. Yes, the latest fashion line for the chic otter on the go. Otter genes are sure to turn heads and- Okay, so I meant genes as in genetics and their evolutionary significance. Still equally as fun, though, promise. Roughly, it is- estimated that sea otters evolved from a common ancestor around 5 million years ago, which sounds like a really long time, but when you compare that to the timeline that animals like whales and dolphins evolved, they had 10 times that amount of time, 50 million years, for natural selection to develop and hone the adaptions that make them ecologically fit. So in that context, you start to see the otter kind of coming around in the blink of an evolutionary eye It really makes you look at some of the adaptions that we talked about earlier in a new light. All of these crazy adaptions, both physically and behaviorally, they all came about crazy quickly. So quick, in fact, that scientists have been calling the sea otter a case of rapid evolution. According to a 2019 study studying the genetics of sea otter rapid evolution gives us a snapshot into the transition of a land mammal into an aquatic one the whole thing is mind-blowing. I mean, think about it. Anyone who is taught Darwin's theory of evolution is essentially told that natural selection and speciation occurs over vast amounts of time. It happens very, very slowly, over the course of generations upon generations. But these sea otters, well, in their own way, they kind of challenge that. It's certainly not the only time we've seen rapid evolution play out. We've seen a change in Hawaiian field crickets causing them to lose their insect song in just five years, and green anole lizards have developed a new adaption for better grips in about a period of 15 years, and of course these are just a few examples, but they share some common themes—that these rapid changes in the animal rise because of rapid changes in the animal's environment—things like predators, insecticides, or climate all of these things can spur on quick changes in the animal. So it leads to a question that how did it come to be that the otter arose so swiftly on the evolutionary scale? Scientists are very invested in the answer to this question, which is another thing that that 2019 study hoped to help answer by looking at the genes that coded for the sea otter fur. And they found that this, look at me, I don't need blubber, take that seals, adaption, came from a shared set of smaller, more minor changes across many genes instead of large sweeping changes to simply a few, and that's only a small piece of the puzzle. What this means, if anything, for otters is still a bit of a mystery, but it's still incredibly important. This same kind of genomic analysis revealed that the human fur trade and hunting to near extinction wasn't necessarily the only time that sea otter populations dipped crazy low due to some bottlenecking force. Better understanding and predicting what kinds of ecological changes led to the rises and falls of sea otters and how otter populations responded, these are the kind of questions we can help answer by looking at otters through a genomic lens. And that sort of data can help us better understand and predict what kind of forces might endanger them in the future. That's a winning proposition for otter managers. And, let's be honest, the rest of us, too, who love to see otters frolicking in the wild. Alright, so it was spoiled just a second ago, but here is the obligatory feel-bad-cause-humans part of the podcast. Otters were hunted to near extinction by humans, and that's largely the force that's responsible for their endangerment today. It happened. It's a fact of life. There is still great news and hope at the end of this story, but right now, I do want to stress that knowing this relatively huge but underrepresented part of history in the otter fur trade is both fascinating and important, so stay with me as we dive into it just a little bit. The sea otter fur trade began in the 18th century, pioneered largely by Russia, though I guess it's more accurate to call it the maritime fur trade since otters were not actually the only animals hunted. They were the most valuable, though. And now there were a wide variety of factors that led to the trade's commencement, but a large factor driving the market was the value of the furs in china Furs would largely be exchanged for oriental goods, teas, silks, and porcelain, among other things. These goods could then be sold to both Europe and the US, making the whole trade super profitable. See, back then, Russia actually controlled what is modern day Alaska. So, working out of Kamchatka and the Aleutian Islands, Russians were kind of the first to corner the market on the trade's profitability it was around 1780 that the British and the Americans entered into the full swing of the trade themselves, focusing on the coasts of modern-day Alaska and through modern-day British Columbia. I mean, there was fierce competition in these areas. Americans dominated the trade for around 40 years, that is, until the 1830s when the British Hudson Bay Company entered the scene with the intentions of driving the Americans out, which they largely did. Drama like this continued as the market shifted and changed, and the trade continued even as maritime mammal populations began a long period of decline, starting in 1810. Now, one particularly interesting aspect of this history is the impacts that the fur trade had on the development of cultures and societies the globe over— I mean, it's a cool and seemingly overlooked part of how some international trade networks even got established in the first place, and in my mind, one factor of how capitalism really began to take off. The trade networks that were established were truly global in scope. Of course, in my mind, the rampant killing of animals for profit leading to near extinction isn't a good thing, but it's important and interesting to see how the trade affected areas of the world at large, both positively and negatively. Here are just some of the trade's effects. On the northwest coast of North America, Native American populations were brought wealth and technology from the trade, leading to changes and booms in native crafting and culture. However, diseases like smallpox, tuberculosis, and even health problems like alcoholism also spread, and the trade didn't exactly help the already existing native slave trade died down? In the areas they controlled, Russians worked to convert natives to Christianity. Meanwhile, down in Hawaii, they seemingly experienced net positive benefits. The fur trade actually helped King Kamehameha I unify all of the Hawaiian islands, as well as bring new crops and animals to the islands. The Hawaiian kingdom experienced a rise in political and economic power, due in large part to the trade. However, these benefits were short-lived as, again, disease and health problems spread. Add in unification warfare and Hawaii saw lots of famine and population decline. In yet another area of the world, though the trade largely hunted on the Pacific coast of North America, the Atlantic coastal areas of New England largely profited, using wealth generated by the trade to largely switch from an agrarian society to an industrial one causing a huge boom in textiles in the area, which, if you follow that domino effect through, it led to a rise in the demand for cotton, which, of course, helped lead to a rapid expansion of cotton plantations in the Deep South, which, again, didn't exactly help the whole slave trade situation. We already talked about the impact that sea otters have had on their own natural ecosystems, but when thought about in this context, the hunt and trade of their pelts had huge rippling effects on human societies as well, for both good and ill. And I barely covered anything here and am no historian. Yet it's easy to see how far-reaching the effects of the trade were, With such profit to be had and development to be encouraged, it's no wonder that the fur trade was able to hunt sea otter populations to near extinction by 1911. That was more than a hundred years ago. So here's the hopeful part. Instead of the usual call of, things are bad, we screwed up, we need to feel bad feelings and feel guilty rhetoric, we instead get to see conservation efforts already in full swing, See, after all that fur trade business, some of us already felt the bad feelings after the populations crashed and started studying sea otter populations with the intent to save them. By 1911, things looked pretty bad with an estimated total population of less than 2,000 individuals. But it's in that same year that the first real policy for conservation came along, with the International Fur Seal Treaty of 1911. This treaty was an agreement between the United States, Great Britain, Canada, Japan, and Russia. The fine print is all law and legalese, but the endgame effect was very clear—a five-year absolute moratorium on any sealing activities, which includes the hunt of sea otters and seals among others, for five years, and management of populations thereafter. The treaty was the first of its kind, an INTERNATIONAL treaty aimed at the issue of wildlife conservation. The treaty actually gave jurisdiction of the hunt management to the United States in exchange for the other powers being able to be granted minimum takes when the time came to actually hunt again. The treaty remained in effect for 30 years, at least until World War II broke out. You know, all the countries in the world that had signed the treaty were kind of fighting each other, and the last thing anybody wanted to talk about on the battlefield was marine mammal conservation. Man, the war would have been totally different if they did, though. The International Fur Treaty still set an important precedent, as the next major win for marine mammals came in 1972 in the United States, with the aptly named Marine Mammal Protection Act of 1972. Man, I love a good clear law name. And if it's a law that helps the marine environment, man, it gives me the happy feeling something fierce. The Marine Mammal Protection Act of 1972 enacted in 1972, just in case you forgot, was a real jumpstart for research into sea otters, as well as other marine mammals, with the goal of an ecosystem-based approach to their conservation. Not only that, it straight-up protected marine mammals from being taken, i.e., hunted, captured, or even harassed. It gave the authority to enforce and manage to both the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and to NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, In time, a third regulatory body was established, the MMC or Marine Mammal Commission. Again, a lot of it is complicated legalese and I'm no lawman, but the intent and effect is stunningly clear. A 2019 review paper on the status and future of sea otter management stated that sea otter populations have risen from that all-time estimated low of less than 2,000 individuals at the end of the fur trade to a rather impressive estimated 150,000 thousand individuals in 2019. I mean, take that number in for a second. Through dedicated conservation and management, populations have managed to multiply and recover by a factor of 75. That's incredible. So today, when you're once again quite likely to see a fluffy, adorable otter bobbing among the kelp just by looking out to sea, it's time to thank policy and the countless individuals who put in the work to make that happen. And to be clear as well, the US isn't the only responsible player in this game. Canada's protection of species at risk, Japan's law of hunting control of sea otters and fur seals, Russia's sea otter conservation status, and support from the IUCN all work together to protect these furry little sea weasels. We aren't there yet. Compared to estimated historic populations, sea otters number roughly half of what they were in the days before the fur trade, and sea otter territories and ranges are still pretty fragmented. I don't say that to be down, quite the opposite. I say that because that means there's a lot more work to do, and the incredible success that we've had should serve as this brilliant beacon of hope that not all is lost. I'm going to stress this over one more time because I think it is really important. Otters mark a phenomenal success story and proof that conservation-based management decisions work. We need research, we need good management decisions, and given time, we can help ecosystems restore and create the adorable paw-holding otter rafts of tomorrow. Looking toward that future, scientists want to know a lot more about things like how otters and seashore communities interact, how conservation of otters benefits ecosystems as a whole, and how we can standardize and make easily available programs for management across geopolitical boundaries. You know, looking back, if there's a theme to this episode, perhaps it's just how big of an impact otters have had and can have. Within their own ecosystems, they regulate ecosystem health they've impacted and drove human culture, and hopefully, they'll be a driving force for the protection of species far beyond their own. See, otters have a unique position and advantage, what with the whole 60-plus years of dedicated research and policy to support and protect them. A lot of other species, though, are in danger and don't have the benefit of massive public research and governmental support— It took us these many long years to get to where we are with otters, but some endangered species don't even have a mention in the legislature. But again, this is not a thing said to be down. It's said, I hope, as a beacon of inspiration. Say it with me again and again. Conservation-based management decisions work. And if we apply the same amount of care and effort alongside the slew of lessons that we learned from conserving sea otters... To the conservation of other species? <laughs> Friends, Romans, and countrymen, that is a future that I want to live in. That's gonna do it for today's episode of Biodiversity. With so many facts about these furry sea weasels, you ought to have enjoyed yourself. Or at least learned a lot. Err. But the time has come to get Otter here. There's a whole ocean of creatures to cover, and I otter get back to work. So until next time, remember to always be kind and support each other. I'll see you all then.